0: Welcome back to the Red Dice Stories RPG Podcast. I'm your host, John, and we're going to be responding in this episode to some more of your lovely voicemails. But first of all, cue the music. Okay, so let's see who's first in the post bag today.
1: Yo, John, another awesome, awesome call-in show, man. Uh, Goblin's Henchman's idea of using usage dice for hit points. That's interesting. I definitely would like to check that out, like a one-shot or something. You know, because sometimes thinking about all this stuff it's different than how it actually feels at the table so that'd be something fun to explore jason's idea of using usage dice for ammunition because as he pointed out melee is supposed to be like a series of blows and missile is just one shot that makes a lot of sense though i think with like a shorter round like in pathfinder that sort of that problem kind of goes away and then Pink Phantom's idea of using usage dice for supplies back at home is absolutely genius. I love that. I want to implement that in my next campaign. I absolutely love it. That dude is a real smart fella, which is better than being a fart smeller. Peace out.
0: That was, of course, Joe Richter from the Hindsightless podcast. Recommend you check that out if you've not done so already. Yet yeah, there were loads of great ideas when it came to usage dice. As I said, I particularly liked Jason's one where he was talking about using it to represent a flurry of bow shots or something similar. But all of them were great ideas. Thank you very much for the call, Joe. Very much appreciated. And next up, we've got Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, who also has some things to say about the Usage Dice episode and call-ins.
2: Hey, John. Jason here. I love Goblin Hinchman's idea of Usage Dice as hit points. I think that's actually really cool. Maybe a really heavy hit, you have to roll two usage dice instead of one to, to represent that. But, you know, because he's rolling that instead of damage. I, I really like that. I think Carl Rodriguez might not really like that because he didn't like the idea of not knowing exactly how hip, many hit points you have because he said he's a self-professed control freak. But <clears throat> I will say, as far as Arfed asked about prime requisites, I'm looking forward to that episode. I So prime requisites really, and the bonus you get for them, really enforce genre norms, right? They really enforce you having strength as your highest attribute if you're a fighter. And and I don't know that I love that idea, to be honest. I understand why it's there, kind of. But yeah, so I'm really curious to hear your take on that. And yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Keep up the great work.
0: Thanks very much, Jason. Greatly appreciated. Yeah, we've uh, obviously now released the, the episode on xp for prime requisites so let me know what you think about that if you've not already (laughs) and we'll probably find a call from you later on about that but yeah i do think it's all to do with reinforcing the fact that if you've got certain stats you're naturally bent towards a certain character class in DD. and to be honest i'm not particularly fussed about it because i can see it used to come back from the days when they only had like three classes in D, &D, you know they're like the little brown books or whatever and uh you really did need to have everything covered there and like each person had their thing that they did and obviously that's not quite so so much the case now as there's more classes and stuff like that but i think it's probably just a bit of a holdover from that to be perfectly honest but again it's not something that really bothers me Uh, i was pleased to sort of like look into it and i liked off suggestion but like like i said in the episode until he mentioned it i just accepted it as like oh it's one of the rules of the game so it never really occurred to me to question it any further but yeah it's definitely been an interesting thing to discuss and hopefully we'll get a little bit more discussion about it if people keep calling in letting us know what they think and next up we've got another call from jason
2: hey john just listen to your voicemail episode where you we talked about evil i called about evil characters and you mentioned you have a chaotic thief who spreads chaos and now, if you have law, gods of law and gods of chaos, and the god is pushing for people to spray chaos, I get that, but I've never understood, because i played with players before, they're like, I'm chaotic, so I'm going to spread chaos and, and just cause mayhem, and I never understood that alignment to be just the Joker, right? It, you know, effectively just spreading chaos and watching the world burn. I, I mean, you could play it that way, I guess, but that's not... How I generally viewed cat, you know, in the three-step alignment. Now, again, if you have a more cocky and long cast world, maybe, um, but but even then, I don't know that just willy-nilly spreading chaos is very helpful to, to a guy's agenda, depending what what that agenda is.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with you there, Jason. If you're just spreading chaos for the sake of it without any sort of purpose, it does seem a little bit weird, to be honest. With the the thief character in my OSE campaign at the minute, Quentin, who, like I say, is a chaotic thief who wants to spread chaos... The reason he's doing that is because he's trying to manoeuvre himself into the position of being in charge of like the Thieves Guild in the town where they live. And he hopes to ferment chaos between a couple of the settlements so that during the ensuing chaos, his thieves can basically ride the wave of that and have the run of the place and pretty much get away with a lot of crimes they wouldn't do normally. And he can sort of ride on the back of that to like, boost his status in the thieves guild so he's not really doing it for just for the sole purpose of spreading chaos but i think jason's got a little bit more to say on this subject go ahead jason
2: you know i mean a character design well oh here's a bridge so tonight instead of going party and all i'm going to go and i'm going to weaken the structures of the bridge so it collapses in two weeks ha 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 ha, ha chaos i mean is that what people do i i don't know it seems kind of silly to me but i don't know if that's their thing Anyway, interesting your thoughts on what chaos is in a three-step alignment without a a strict, you know, God's law, God's chaos thing. Or do you do the God's law, God's chaos thing? Curious on that. Or is chaos just more selfish? Or obviously on three-step would also cover your evil things, you you know, willing to do slavery, willing to do this, that. But again, now we're getting back to selfish and self-serving, right? Is it really evil or is it just self-serving?
0: Yeah, the alignment thing's interesting, and I don't really have a definite answer for it. I mean, there's far wiser people than me who've spent countless hours putting together blog posts, videos, and stuff like that to discuss it. I quite like the sort of Lamentations of the Flame Princess vibe, where it's like, law and chaos are cosmic principles, and like 99% of people are neutral. I also probably lean a bit on like B5, you know, with the, the Vorlons and the Shadows, where law versus chaos for my sort of view of it i've always seen law as a as a force of permanence and stasis you know so they they the good points are they impose structure on things but they're resistant to change they're a little bit set in their ways Whereas chaos is a force of destruction, but also a force of change. So ideally, you want a balance between the two of them because you want some creation. You also need some necessary destruction, but you also want some permanence and some structure. You don't want everything to be too chaotic. So I envision most people, certainly in my campaign world are neutral because they fall in between those two polar opposites. However, there are some people who dedicate themselves to either preserving society, which I see as lawful, or sort of disrupting and changing society, which I see as chaotic in my games. I hope that explains it a little bit anyway. But that like I say, that's just my opinion.
2: Hey, John, Jason here. Enjoyed your Corporate Evil episode? Basically, we're talking the Sheriff of Nottingham, right? And I think that's a, a great kind of villain to have in the campaign, especially ongoing campaign. I, I think those kind of consequences and and characters are going to come across. The bureaucrats and all that you can't just off are, are excellent characters to include, and especially bureaucrats that are power hungry and looking to get ahead. So they're happy to do that on the characters' backs. So excellent, excellent podcast, and I will talk to you again soon.
0: Yeah, I think the Sheriff of Nottingham is an excellent example of what we were talking about in that episode. Like you say, it's these sort of enemies that pose a threat to the player characters, but you can't just simply roll up on them and stick a broadsword through them, like you could with like an Orc Warlord or a Beholder or or a Barbarian Chief or something like that. It's someone who basically knows how to work the system to their advantage, so you have to try and find a way of sort of taking them out within the system whilst avoiding the pitfalls of potentially getting in trouble yourself and i think you know when you've done wrong there's nothing wrong with like fighting against sort of barbaric monsters and stuff like that but it's nice to have a change of pace every now and again and have a villain who's maybe a little bit more subtle in their villainy rather than just being like a ravening monster and next up we have a call from goblins Henchman.
3: hi john goblins Henchman here so um just a quick comment on characters who get bonus XP if they got a high prime requisite. Um I just wonder if it, it's a bit of game design to, especially back in the day, maybe they wanted to encourage people to make characters that made sense, you know? Because obviously you could, if you had a, if you rolled eighteen zero zero strength and you only had eleven intelligence, you say, "Oh, I'm going to be a magic user anyway." Ha. You know, so this is a kind of way of sort of trying to guide people to naturally be thinking about making um, characters that sort of fit the trope made sense rather than like maybe characters that, you know, might be more kind of weird and therefore sort of break kind of immersion almost. I don't know. Um, Anyway, just a thought. I mean, ironically, I've known about this rule for a while, but I think I invariably forget to add the 10% and I think the players have got it often forget to take the 10% too. So there you go.
0: Thanks very much for the call in Goblins Henchmen. Yeah, I've got to admit, to be honest, when I've been playing D&D, the amount of times I've forgotten to add the bonus XP for like a high prime requisite is ridiculous. It's just something that slips my mind at the end of a session. As I was saying earlier in response to Jason's voice, man, I think you're absolutely right. I think that it was originally designed to sort of funnel you into the areas or the classes that the statue's rolled naturally suited. And I think, as I've said earlier, that's probably a holdover from earlier versions of the game when there were far less classes to choose from, and every class there was had their specific niche within the dungeon, their specific thing they did. So it was a lot more sort of black and white, if you'll forgive the term. Like In the early days of D&D, you, know, you had fighters fought, clerics healed people, magic users cast damaging spells and did like, research and read from scrolls. And stuff like that. So I think the roles were a lot more sort of rigidly defined, if that's the correct word, in earlier editions of the game. So it made sense to sort of like, if you've got stats that are good for this class, you really want to go for that class. Whereas I think the, the sort of lines between the different classes and sort of what they accomplish within the game have been blurred over the years as more classes have come out. And the game has sort of moved away from being such a strictly regimented system but those are just my thoughts
2: hey john jason here just listen to your uh, collect the monster terms and that's a great point and, and yeah definitely your average character now if you're interacting with a wizard right or or a even a trained monster hunter might not use the the proper terms for for these different things right it might just be a wizard or an academic that's like oh, no, this is the subspecies of hobgoblin or, or, you know, whatever. But, yeah, definitely your avid villager, they're all monsters. They're all goblins or they're all trolls or whatever, right? So I think that's a great point. And and two might even call them different things, right? One villager is going to call them trolls and the other one's going to call them goblins, but they're referring to the same monster, which, you know, when you, you go back in history, a lot of these terms are used pretty interchangeably. So, yeah, great episode.
0: Thanks very much, Jason. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And another advantage, if you want to call it that, of using these collective terms in a game, is that once the player characters and the players get used to the fact that like, when someone says a goblin, they don't necessarily mean a goblin, it means the next time they roll up to a village and they're like, oh, there's some goblins attacking us, help us brave heroes, they're going to be a little more cautious and maybe want to do a little bit more investigation rather than just being like, our goblins, we can take them on because they know that the villagers could be describing any one of a vast gamut of different species and i quite like that sort of bit of uncertainty and tension in games i think it can be quite interesting and sort of make a game a lot more fun
1: to play yo john that was an awesome episode on aliens man it really got me thinking the more we learn about the universe the more it's starting to come clear like some of the old sci-fi tropes were wrong but some of them were right like we know there are ice shell moons, ice worlds out there. We know that. There's probably ocean worlds out there. Uh, a forest moon wouldn't be out of context or anything. And then some of those old tropes of, like, why the aliens would come to Earth. You know, like, they'd come to steal our water. There's way more water everywhere else in the universe than here. You know, like, there's tons and tons and tons of water in the universe. You know, sometimes it's they come down to steal precious metals. But there's way you could go find an asteroid the size of the moon that's just basically solid gold. There was just a supernova that was throwing out rocks of gold the size of a moon. Peace out.
0: That, of course, again, was Joe Richter from the Hindsightless podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for your calling, Joe. I think you're absolutely right about sci-fi. It's one of, in my opinion, one of the best and worst points, paradoxically, about science fiction as a genre. Because it's always speculating and making educated guesses about things that are going to happen in the future. Inevitably, as much has got right as as much has got wrong wrong and we see this where you know whenever we watch an old like tv program like a panorama documentary or something like that and it's from like 40 years ago and they're like what will the house of tomorrow be like and they're talking about like oh yeah we're all gonna fly in cars and like hover boots and stuff like that and you look at some of it and you're like oh that's absolutely ridiculous we we've not got that at all then you look at other things where they're like oh you'll be able to see people on a video screen when you're talking to them and you're like okay they maybe got the specifics a little bit wrong but you know, we can video conference with people now. So they sort of got it right. In a way, it was just filtered through the lens of their perceptions of their time. And I think we're we're gonna inevitably see this with like the sci-fi that's coming out today and stuff like that. 20, 30, 40, whatever years in the future, the people then will be looking back at what we were speculating now. And some of it, they'll be like, oh, as if they really thought we were going to have, like, warp drives and stuff like that. But there'll be other things that that we can't possibly know at the minute, where they'll be like, oh, actually, yeah, they were sort of dead on with that. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about science fiction, because every person who writes or creates a bit of science fiction, they have their own view, and some of them are really realistic, based on actual facts, and, you know, Academic predictions about what we'll have in the future, or they're looking at existing technologies and they're extrapolating things. And some of them are just wild, crazy, like space opera things. But they're all fun, and they're all a different person's viewpoint of the sort of future we might leave behind for our inheritors. And I think that's a really cool thing.
2: Hey, John, Jason, here just listening to your wee little rest break episode, and I have to say, I don't even think it's a good idea. I think it's a should be a mandatory thing, really. It's definitely something you should build into your game. If it's a three, four-hour session, halfway through the session, do a break, a bio break, so people can run to the bathroom, refill their drinks, whatever. Um, if you're playing a longer session, then maybe you look at, you know, break every hour or every two hours, five-minute break. I, I really think it's important to to do those breaks, not only for the things that help the gm that you concentrated on but it also helps with the players because if the players have other things going on then to go to the bathroom they want to grab something to eat they want to do whatever then it gives them a chance to do that that's not interrupting their they don't have to pull attention away from the game so you don't have that distracted player by having those breaks so i i think it's a good idea all around
0: thanks very much jason yeah i personally find it very important in online games because i Mostly run RPGs online, just due to my circumstances. But for me, because I'm getting on a bit now, I mean, this isn't a reason I mentioned the episode. But I'm getting on a bit now. If I spend like three, four hours just sat like hunched over my keyboard, looking at a screen, when I come to get up after the session, there's all manner of like creaking and groaning going on as my old bones are slowly stirred into life. And then you know you have to walk around a bit so like your legs aren't stiffening up and whatever. You find you say oh i'm a bit parched i didn't realize how long it had been you've got to go and get yourself a drink and normally you're a bit fired up after a session although if it finishes late you might have to head to bed straight away so you've got to like, walk around a bit get yourself settled down have a drink whatever go to bed and you're sort of rushing to do all this stuff whereas having like a little break in the middle of a game you can get up stretch your legs go and have a drink Go outside, get a bit of fresh air, etc. Come back nice and refreshed, and you're ready to go into the game, and you'll probably be more focused as a result when the game actually restarts. I mean, it's not a mandatory thing for the sort of games I run, and to be honest, sometimes I'll just forget to call a break if we're all particularly getting into like, like a particular like dungeon or a very like high action scenario, but. I do try and have at least a sort of 5-10 minute break in the middle of like a two three four hour session. Just so that people can, you know, look away from the screen. They can go and get drinks. They can use the facilities, etc. Just so that we're all nice and comfortable and we're focused on the game. Not the nagging dull ache in our bladders. And I think that's very important.
2: Hey John, Jason here again. Regarding your Aliens episode, very good. Really like what you did. And to be fair... That doesn't have to be limited to sci-fi. All those principles really could be used for, you know, strange fantasy monsters. They could even be used for non-human and semi-human race. Well, maybe not semi humans as much because you have some connection there. But with the non-human races, right? Or, or non-human ancestries, whatever you want to call them now. But, or species. But, yeah, I personally, I, I like to try to look... Well, we've talked about whether... You treat dwarves and elves like pointy-eared humans or not, or treat them weirder. But definitely, I think the principles you outlay there could definitely could work for fantasy creatures as well. so Great episode. Keep up the great work. Hey, John. Thank you for the tavern episode. Really enjoyed it. Keep up the great work.
0: Thanks very much, Jason. Yeah, you're absolutely right. All of the principles from the aliens episode can be equally used with bizarre fantasy races to make them seem a bit more non-human or a bit otherworldly that's definitely something you can do and i i suppose I, I do sort of lean more towards the the standard depictions of like elves and dwarves etc in games if i'm going to be offering them as playable races however if i'm running a more humanocentric campaign then like, like a lamentations game or something like that where i tend to mostly have humans then i definitely lean towards making these races weirder or stranger because i don't have to explain all of that to a player and it makes them seem a little bit more like I say otherworldly and that can add a great deal to the game as far as i'm concerned glad you liked the tavern episode dude if you've got any more suggestions for things you'd like to see let me know And likewise, if anyone out there's got something they'd like to say about a previous episode, maybe you just want to chat about tabletop RPGs, or maybe you've got a suggestion you want to make for a future episode, please get in touch and let us know. You might be featured in one of these call-in episodes yourself. We really do love listening to them. So if you do want to get in touch, you can do so a number of different ways. You can leave us a voicemail message using Speakpipe or Anchor. There's a link in the description of this episode. Or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com. So until we see you again, take care, stay safe, and whatever you're playing, have fun.